Today we are continuing our teaching series from the books of First and Second Thessalonians on what happens when uh, Jesus comes back. We took a break last week for Independence Day, but we're back in it today. There are four chapters in these two books, these two letters Paul wrote to the believers in the city of Thessalonica, which deal with Jesus coming back. And we already looked at the two chapters in 1 Thessalonians. Today and next Sunday, we'll look at the two chapters in 2 Thessalonians. So this morning, please open your Bible with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. Now, remember, this is a church in Thessalonica, which the Apostle Paul started, planted on his second missionary journey. And they endured various levels of persecution and opposition from the very beginning. When he writes this second letter, they are still experiencing opposition, still experiencing persecution. And when he writes about the second coming, in this passage in particular, he relates it to that suffering, to that persecution. And we're going to look at that. Uh, today. So let me see your copy of God's Word, whether it's written or electronic. Hold it up, wave it at me, let me see it. Amen. Thank you, thank you. Always bring God's Word with you to worship. We're going to start with verse 6 of chapter 1, verse 6. Now, in the opening verses, he greets them and he brags on them. He commends them for the way they love one another through all that's happening, and he really brags on them for their perseverance. He, uh, he just encourages them because they've been faithful through the hard times. He's proud of them for that. And then he adds in verse 6, For after all, it is only just, it is only right, for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. And us as well, talking about himself and his missionary team, to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 8. When Jesus comes back with those angels in flaming fire, he will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These, those who don't know God, who don't obey the gospel, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes, when he comes back. Notice this, to be glorified in his saints. When Jesus comes back, to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. To be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. In other words, Paul says, we shared the gospel with you, and you believed. Now, he says, as we've already seen in the previous chapters, that Jesus is literally coming back, accompanied by his mighty, his powerful angels, in flaming fire. In the Bible, fire is used three ways when it's associated with God. It's a picture that describes the presence of God, the holiness of God, the brightness of God, the glory of God. Fire is also used to describe the purifying work God does in our lives to make us pure and rid us of sin. Fire is also used to refer to God's wrath, God's judgment, if you will, God's punishment. And in this passage, 
all three uses of fire occur. He says when Jesus comes back with his mighty angels in flaming fire doing all that I just said, there will be two groups of people on planet earth. Not three, not four, not five. There will be two groups of people. And one of those groups will be his saints. Verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. To be marveled at among all who have believed. Those who've made a personal decision. They came to a point in their life when they clearly, freely, consciously decided to become followers of Jesus. To not simply believe that he exists, but to believe it enough to depend on it, to trust it, to make a commitment to Christ. And when they did that, in the moment they became a true believer, they became saints. Now, we don't use the word saints and sainthood very much, sanctification. I think we're scared of it. We're afraid of it because of some of the history associated with that word. We think of saints as being these super, super, super spiritual, holy Christians. And I get that. But what the word actually means is one who is who, who belongs to God. You could translate it as holy ones because in the Old Testament, if something was holy, something was sanctified, it, it's, it's an object that was dedicated to God, therefore belonged to God. That's what made it holy. It was God's possession and an instrument that God used that served God and his purposes. And what the Bible teaches is when you become a disciple of Jesus, you become a saint. You belong to God. You are his and he you are to serve his purpose. And, and because you are his, you seek to reflect him and how you live. Now, you'll do that imperfectly, but you are to do it. And on the resurrection day, when Jesus comes back and you receive that new glorified body, your sanctification will be completed and you'll reflect him perfectly then. But you're always to be reflective. You are a saint. It's not just, you know, Mother Teresa. You are a saint. You belong to him. You know him. Last weekend, we had uh, Stephen's four children for the weekend, our four grandkids. And um, next month, when we travel to his house in Lexington, South Carolina, when number five arrives, those are ours. They're not yours. Those are my grandkids. Later this month, when Jacqueline's tooth come here from California and spend time with us, they're mine. And I'm going to give them as much ice cream as they want. I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what their mom and dad say. I'm gonna, we're going to get ice cream every day. If that's what they want, we're getting ice cream every day. Why? They're mine. Monisa is mine. She's not yours. And God says, when you become a believer, you become his. You belong to him. You are his holy one. You are his saint. You are his family. And because you love him and he loves you, you live like it. When God sends the son, when Jesus comes back, who's he going to find on earth? He's going to find saints. He's going to find people who love him, belong to him, and are serving him. The question is, are you a saint? Do you belong to him? 
Have you made the decision to do more than believe he's real? Believe enough that you commit your life to him. Are you his? Because if you're not, you belong to that second group Jesus will find when he comes back. And that second group described in verse 8 are those who do not know him. They may believe he's real, but they don't know him. Look at verse 8. When he comes back, you know, verse 7, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, in verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, those who don't know God. They, they don't have a relationship with him. They may believe he exists, but they don't know him. They're not in fellowship. They're not in a relationship with him. That was me. I did not know God until I was a teenager. And I made the decision to become a follower of Jesus. And that very moment when I committed my life to Jesus Christ, I became a saint and I knew God. Now, I know him better today than I did that first day. That's what spiritual growth, Christian maturity is about. That's what marriage is about. Listen, Monisa and I know each other a whole lot better now than we did 40 years ago when we got married. And if you've been a follower of Jesus, you should know him better today than you used to. But you know him. The other group Jesus is going to find when he comes back are people who don't know him. They may believe, yeah, there's a God. Jesus really did live, but they don't know him. And the reason they don't know him is what he mentions in that verse. They have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus. What is the gospel? Evangelion. It's the good news. It's the, the good news of all that Jesus does. The good news of Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The good news of Jesus being raised from the dead to purchase freedom over the grave and the hell. The good news that Jesus forgives and transforms us. The good news that he is in a relationship with us when we trust him and give ourselves to him. It's the good news that with Jesus everything changes. And when it says they have not obeyed it, that means they may have heard they may have heard the gospel. And there are some of you in this room that have heard the gospel. You've heard the story of Jesus many, many times. You may have heard it. They may have heard it, but they never obeyed it. They never responded positively. They never said yes. And here's the thing. If you don't say yes, you are saying no. If you don't respond with a yes... Whether you intend to or not, you are saying no because you're not doing what the gospel says. You're not obeying the message of the gospel. You are disobeying it. And that puts you in the second group. And you need to know which group you're in. Because the group to which you belong determines what happens to you when Jesus comes back. See, that's the next thing I want to show you. When Jesus comes back, he's going to turn the tables. The tables will be turned completely. Look at verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's going to turn the tables. I mentioned the Thessalonian believers were being persecuted. 
The word affliction or afflict means to squeeze. That's what it literally means, to squeeze something. To put pressure on something, to push down on it. Then as today, those who follow Jesus are feeling the pressure. They're being squeezed around the world in a lot of different ways. There are places in the world today where your brothers and sisters in Jesus are being squeezed. They're they're being pressed in on with literal physical persecution, physical violence, where it is dangerous physically to say, I love Jesus. Do you know that today in our world on planet Earth, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world? Did you know that? More Christians are killed for their faith than any other religious group on planet Earth today. We don't deal with that here. But that squeezing, that pressure, that affliction can take a lot of different, a lot of different forms. There's cultural pressure. Cultural intimidation. Presses on us. And man, we feel that a lot. In America, those of you going to school sometimes feel that that squeezing, that that pressure of the culture intimidating your faith. That squeezing, that pressure can can be economic. You can lose your job, miss out on a promotion, not be hired. Somebody not want to do business with you. A few years ago, when it became a matter of public discourse about the, the Kathy family that owns Chick-fil-A being Christians and not believing in gay marriage, there became a controversy in the country. And there were universities that said, we're not going to allow Chick-fil-A restaurants on our campus. You know how McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and others have these kids' meals and in those bags or boxes or little toys for the kids. When I was a kid, we all, we, all we had was Cracker Jacks. Little toys and crackers. That's all we had. And had better toys than they got now. But now you got kids' meals. And the kids buy it because they want the toy. They don't care about the food. They want the toy, right? And the company that was to make the toys to go in Chick-fil-A's kids' meal... backed out of the contract and said we're not going to produce a toy for a company like you that won't support gay marriage economic pressure now they have the freedom to do that we talked about that last Sunday but that's affliction that's pressure why because you follow Christ and you obey Christ and you believe what he says and that's that squeezing that's happening more and more in our country today there's political pressure, the political squeeze, whether it's local municipalities, state legislatures, or the national national legislature passing laws, or usually even worse, bureaucrats in government at different levels establishing regulations that want to squeeze your faith out of you in the public arena. And what the Bible tells us is when Jesus comes back, the tables are going to be turned. Look at verse 7. After 
after telling us in verse 6 that it's only right that he repays with affliction those who afflict us in verse 7 he says what he's going to do is give relief give relief to you who are afflicted to you who are squeezed you who are feeling the pressure when Jesus comes back with his angels in fire he's going to give you relief the word relief there and I love the way Paul does a word play here the word relief means to release the pressure on all on that listen on that day when Jesus comes back all the pressure will disappear you will never feel any pressure any squeeze any squeezing any opposition because of your faith in Jesus ever again when that day comes he's going to release the pressure and you listen you are going together as we said the other day you're going together with all the saints of the earth throughout history and together we are going to bask in the glory of Jesus Christ. Bask in his glory. Look at verse 10 where he says when he comes, when Jesus comes back to be glorified in his saints. Let that sink in. To be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at, to be marveled at among all who have believed. Your faithfulness to Jesus. He's talking to these Thessalonians who are feeling the pressure. He's talking to you and me. When you feel the pressure, he says your faithfulness to God when the pressure is on is going to be rewarded. (laughs) He's going to turn the tables. And on that day, you will stand there with those saints. And together, we will marvel at the glory of Jesus. Remember I said fire is used also to depict the presence of God and his glory. The the word glory, the word glory is the Shekinah glory. It's brightness, that brightness and light and fire. He's bright. And we're going to stand there and marvel at the sight basking in his glory you you can go outside your house at midnight especially if you live out in the country it's dark but if it's one of those nights when there's not a cloud in the sky you can easily see to walk around because of the light coming from the moon and all the moon is doing is reflecting the light that came from the sun. The moon and the various planets, asteroids and other objects in the sky reflect the sunlight. Some to more degree, to a greater degree than others. The moon, depending on its location during its orbit around the earth, only reflects at any moment 3 to 12% of the sunlight hits it. And you see those nights when it's a full moon and it's bright and it's beautiful. Can you imagine how spectacular it would be if the moon reflected all the sunlight that hits it? And we're only seeing 10, 12% at best. When Jesus comes back with the Shekinah glory of God, we're going together and the whole universe will see all of us reflecting his glory. 
as we bask in it. All those who have not believed the gospel, all those who have not obeyed the gospel, all those who have afflicted God's saints will see his glory reflected off his saints. And they're going to miss out on all of it. Again, I ask, which group do you belong to? Because the group to which you belong determines what your experience will be like on that day. The tables are turned. And God's saints will see the pressure released as they bask in his glory. But for those who do not obey the gospel, it's going to be a different story. Here's the next thing I want you to see. Antagonistic unbelievers. Antagonistic unbelievers will receive retribution. Look at verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Dealing out retribution means to give someone what is due them, what they deserve. It is just punishment. That's the reason in verse 6 he said it's only just that God afflicts those who afflict us. You ever watch a movie? There's all kinds of them. You ever watch a movie and... uh, you know, here's this character, or maybe two or three characters, and they're, they're, they're working together. And they're just mean. They're evil. They're corrupt. They're dishonest. They're crooked. They break the law. They don't care. They're selfish. And then you've got this, this other character, innocent victim. And the powerful people, the crooks over here, are always taking advantage of the innocent ones, setting them up, getting them blamed for everything, and they get in trouble with the law. You ever seen movies like that? And the longer you watch that movie, the madder you get. And toward the end of the movie, what happens? The truth comes out. You do understand when Jesus comes back, the truth is coming out, don't you? But in these movies, the truth comes out. And then the cops show up at the office of the bad dude. Put the cuffs on. Take him to jail. How do you feel when that happens? Yeah, Moniz and I watched one of those the other day, and they went to the bank, and this was a bank president, big crook. They put the, put the cuffs on him, but they didn't let me see him in jail being humiliated. I wanted to see him in jail. He was a bad dude. And then the innocent victim, innocent victim, they're vindicated, let out of jail, on and on how do you feel you have within you a sense of that's good that's right you have it you have within you a sense of fairness right god needs to pay for what he did god does the same thing in romans chapter 12 we're told that it's not our job to take vengeance god will do that Verses 19 and 20, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, quoting a verse from the Old Testament. Then verse 20, but if your enemy is is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. That's Jesus' teaching. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, some people quote that verse and they have the bad, they have a wrong attitude. I'm going to dump a bucket of hot coals on his head. What the verse is saying is you're to love them. 
Because when you feed them and when you give them something to drink, when you love them and you show love, you give them the opportunity to repent and get right with God. You're being a witness to them. But if they keep saying no, they continue refusing to repent, man, they're just making it worse for themselves on the judgment day. That's fair. That's just. That's right. But there's more. Because he makes it clear in here that unbelievers, not just those who are antagonistic and put the pressure on us, but unbelievers, those who don't obey the gospel, will suffer an eternal punishment. Look at verse 9. These will pay the penalty. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The NIV translates it, I think, punished. What the word means is it's the idea of going to court. You are found guilty. The judge gives a sentence and then you're punished. In God's courtroom, unbelievers will be, will be found guilty of sin. Guilty of saying no. Guilty of not obeying the gospel. Guilty of not believing enough to put their faith in Christ. They will be found guilty and the sentence will be given and they will have to serve the sentence and the sentence is eternal punishment away from the presence of God. When he talks there about that destruction, he's not talking about annihilation. He's talking about ruin. He's talking about devastation. And the devastation is that they will be banished from the presence of Jesus, he says. Banished from the presence of God. Banished from heaven as a result. Banished from all the good things that God wants to do for us. Banished from the glory of Christ. Banished from all of it. And not just for 10 years, but for eternity. Some people, and you've probably talked to a few, struggle with the idea of God judging and punishing anybody. They struggle with the concept of hell. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, died recently of pancreatic cancer. PCA church pastor. Planted that church a number of years ago with the, with the, the goal of, of reaching the business people, the educated, the wealthy of New York City, and God used them, grew a great church. Keller, for years, did something on Sundays. After the service, the worship service, he would have an after-service Q&A session for skeptics and critics and secular people so they could ask questions about the sermon, about Christianity and so on, and he would have a very respectful dialogue. His demeanor was respectful. And this went on for years and was very effective. During one of those after-service conversations, there was a woman who, who mentioned to him that she found the Bible's teaching about God judging and punishing people offensive. And a lot of people do. So how do you answer that? He, he asked her a question. He asked her why she was not offended by the idea of God forgiving people. And she just looked at him with a puzzled look. Well, what do you mean? He went on to urge her to consider 
how culture and background shapes our reaction to everything, including the Bible's teaching about God and Jesus. And then said something to the effect, in our secular Western culture, some people are offended by the idea of hell, of judgment, of punishment. But those same people tend to be attracted to Christian teaching, biblical teaching, Jesus teaching. They tend to be attracted to his teaching about turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, forgiving people. And then he pointed out to her, there are places in the world, there are other cultures where it's just the opposite. There are some places in the world, some culture, where the thing that causes people to struggle with accepting Christianity is not hell and the judgment. They are attracted to that. But what offends them to the deepest part of their being is the idea of turning the other cheek. Loving your enemy and forgiving people because in their background, in their environment, in their culture, it is seen as just and fair and right to take vengeance on anyone who wrongs you. They view that as a natural God-given right. And you want me to turn the other cheek? That doesn't make any sense. So they are turned off to Christianity by that teaching. Just the opposite of the Western culture. And they are attracted to Christianity because of the teaching about a just God and judgment and punishment and hell. Polar opposites in their reactions. What attracts one offends the other. And then he asked her. Why should our Western culture be the final judge on what is just? Now chew on that one a minute. And then he asked her if she thought her culture was superior to those other cultures. And she answered, no. And he had her. See, whatever culture you grow up in, you live in, whatever background you come from shapes you and how you think. And cultures all over the world will have different sensibilities. Differing senses of what is fair and just and right and good. So which culture gets to decide? Because they don't agree. They don't agree. The truth is, no culture gets to decide what is eternally just and true. Only God does. Because whatever your culture, whatever your background, whatever your sensibilities, they have been tainted and twisted and corrupted by your sin and the sin of your culture. By your humanity and imperfection. 
by your limited intelligence and knowledge of eternity. And if your sensibility, your thinking is the ultimate decider, we're in trouble because yours is lacking. Mine is lacking. Everyone's is lacking in some way. It's just we're lacking in different places. God says, turning the other cheek, loving your enemy, forgiving people, God says, that's good. And that's right. Whether some cultures reject it or not. God says, repaying with affliction those who afflict his children. Eternal punishment for those who refuse to obey the gospel and continue to reject Jesus. God says, it's just and it's fair and it's right. You can argue with God, but you're going to lose. You're going to lose. I ask again, which group do you belong to? Because God says, this this is the future. This is the destiny of every human being. Your destiny is determined by what you decide during your life to do with the gospel, with the person of Jesus Christ. It it is all, listen, it is already set in stone what will happen to those who follow Jesus. It is already set in stone what will happen to those who do not. The only question is, which group are you in? To whom, which group do you belong let me wrap this up for those of you in the room those watching on live stream or television you've heard the gospel today you've heard it some of you've heard it many many times in your life but you've never said yes you need to understand that not saying yes is saying no if you've been one who's never said yes to Jesus you're not obeying the gospel you're not his saint All of that can change for you right now. And I'm inviting you to say yes to the gospel. I'm inviting you to say yes to Jesus. I'm encouraging you and inviting you to stop saying no. Stop saying later. Stop procrastinating. I'm inviting you right now, not tomorrow, right now, not this afternoon, right now, to say yes. We're going to stand and sing a song. If you would, everyone standing, please. As we sing this song, pastors will be here at the front. And I'm asking you to say yes to Jesus, to walk from where you are to where these pastors will be standing and say to one of these pastors, I'm saying yes to Jesus right now. I want to be a saint. I want to belong to him. I want to follow Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. And I want to bask in his glory when he comes back.